Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. This is episode two, Overexcitability and Pseudoscience. everyone, welcome back to Positive Disintegration Podcast, a framework for becoming your authentic self. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson. I'm a business analyst who uses business tools and techniques to explain Dabrowski's theories on my YouTube channel, Adults with Overexcitabilities, and I write the Tragic Gift blog. I'm also the technical director of the Podiversity Podcast. Joining me again today is my co-host and our resident expert on positive disintegration, Chris Wells, a Dabrowski scholar, researcher, and therapist in private practice. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Emma. It's great to be back. So our topic today is overexcitability, something that I'm personally excited to discuss. And Chris, you recently presented at the National Association for Gifted Children. Um, they had a conference. How was it? Right. It was great. It was wonderful to be back at a conference in person. It was just kind of magical, to be honest. I it was the best conference experience I think I've ever had. And my presentation went well, which was, of course, the most important thing for me. And I just was blown away by how many people wanted to talk about Dabrowski's theory from whether they came to my presentation or they know me because of social media or they list, they heard a podcast interview or they heard our first podcast episode. It was great. That's really cool. I'm really pleased it it went well for you. So what was the topic that you presented on? Well, the title was Distinguishing Science from Pseudoscience, Overexcitability and the Gifted. And my session was a response to two sessions, well, two years in a row at NAGC. There was a Confronting Pseudoscience in Gifted Education panel. In both years, they made the claim that Dabrowski's theory and overexcitability's you know, that it's pseudoscience. And so my session, the whole point of it was to respond to that, to say that it's not pseudoscience, but that there have been misapplications. So you really kind of went out there to throw down the gauntlet, I guess, and also sort of clear up some myths. That's right. That's right. It did feel like I was throwing down the gauntlet. And I have to admit that I was a little disappointed that none of the critics came to my session to, to say anything. Were you hoping for a bit of an argy-bargy? A little bit, yeah. I I was. I was all psyched up for it. Ready for a fight. <laughs> Ready. Absolutely. Well, it's good to see you um taking the bull by the horns, I guess, and sort of flying the flag science and, and for Dabrowski. Well, I believe in this. I've, I study this full time for my work. And I know that the critics have only the most superficial understanding of these constructs. And so... I felt um, well prepared. You went in arm to the teeth, huh? That's exactly right. Yep. Cool. Well, that's awesome because today um, we're going to talk about uh, a lot of the topics that you covered in that presentation and, you know, fresh from your your battle, um, I'm sure it's all fresh in your mind as well. So I'm really excited to get into this topic with you today. Me too. So I guess the first question that might be on our listeners' mind is, what are overexcitabilities? So um, can you give us an explanation of what overexcitabilities are? Yes. Overexcitability is a much older construct than most people think. It predates Dabrowski's theory and Dabrowski by many years. 
it comes from the condition known as nervousness. And nervousness goes back in the medical literature to the 1700s. And overexcitability, the first place I saw it was in William James's Principles of Psychology in 1890, in volume two, where he talks about psychic excitability, emotional excitability, hyperexcitability, just like Dabrowski. Then there are others who used it before he did. But, right, so Dabrowski is the one who took overexcitability, differentiated it into five types, and built his theory of positive disintegration around it. And so the five types are psychomotor, sensual, intellectual, imaginational, and emotional. But actually, it started, first he wrote about it in 1929 with sensual and emotional, and then he added psychomotor and imaginational, and then he didn't actually add intellectual until 1958. So that's a fair gap. I mean, he must have been working on this for a fair amount of time then. Yes, that's right. He did. Um, He put a lot of thought into this, into all of this. And there's a book from 1935 called Nervousness of Children and Youth. And it's actually a Polish title, but my Polish pronunciation is rough. So I'm not going to attempt it right now. (laughs) But um, Michael Piachowski has been translating this book for the last year or so. And it's been very interesting because this in this book, he is talking about nervousness and overexcitability. And it ends with his kind of the germ of the theory. But instead of positive disintegration, he was calling it disaggregation, like of psychic structures. And so you can see from his earliest work that overexcitability played a hugely important part in his in the development of the theory itself. But the theory didn't come until later. The first full outline of the theory was in 1949. And so that kind of gives you a sense of the progression of these ideas. It's quite a good good timeline for us. So what did um, Dabrowski actually define overexcitability as? Overexcitability is a lowered threshold to stimuli. And this stimuli can occur in your inner environment. It can come from emotions or your imagination, or it can be external outside of you. And so really it's an overreaction to stimuli. Um, People who are overexcitable respond to things that other people don't even notice. They have more prolonged reactions to stimuli. It's in the nervous system. I'm assuming that that includes the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. So when you say you've got a heightened response to things and you notice things, you, you notice the good and the bad at the same time. That's right. Yes, it can, it can be wonderful. You're responding because you're ecstatic or it can be negative that you are you know, over responding to maybe too much noise or light or... I mean, even imaginational over-response can be bad or can feel bad. Um, and so one of the things that I've figured out from studying the Polish work especially is that there's tremendous overlap between Dabrowski's construct of overexcitability and some modern diagnoses that we have, such as ADHD or autism, sensory processing disorder, stuff like that. Um, overexcitability is a very broad construct that includes the sensory or the, you know, the inattention or the motor 
hyperactivity or, you know, of any of these conditions. I mean, I hate to, I don't, I am a neurodiversity affirming practitioner. And so I don't look at these as problems or disorders so much as who we are, if we have them. That's interesting. So you're talking about a set of people who have overexcitability. Who is most likely to sort of have overexcitability, you know, according to Dabrowski's research and also what you found in your own research? It seems to me that the people who are most likely to experience overexcitability are people who are gifted, which is, you know, one group that we know about. Um, and then within gifted, the twice exceptional, I think, are especially likely, and especially the ones who have a diagnosis like ADHD or autism. But you don't have to be gifted. And so outside of that, you know, I've certainly known people who aren't intellectually gifted, but have overexcitability. They may or may not relate to or, you know, identify with ADHD or autism. Some people you know, a lot of people who consider themselves highly sensitive people also resonate with Dabrowski's overexcitability, but not all. It's it's very interesting to me, the different groups that do feel that they are overexcitable. And it's fair to say that not all gifted people have overexcitability, right? That's right. That's right. They don't. I don't, it's, it's impossible to say how many gifted people, people ask me often, well, what is the percentage of the gifted who are overexcitable? Well, it's hard to say because it depends on what definition we're using of gifted, for one thing. I mean, if we're talking about gifted as achievement in the classroom, you're going to have a different percentage than if you are looking at gifted from, you know, in terms of like IQ scores or the psychological aspect of giftedness. It's, or, you know, asynchronous development. There's no consensus in the field of gifted education around the definition of giftedness. And so that complicates things. That's interesting that you bring it up because then I guess it would depend on whether or not the person identified with traits of overexcitability or not just whether or not they're gifted or fit in some other sort of box. Right. There are many manifestations of overexcitability. And the table of manifestations that we have that we use most often which is in Michael Pihovsky's book, Mellow Out, it's in other places, it's certainly not exhaustive. There are lots of manifestations of overexcitability that we have not captured in the literature yet at this point, I would say. But that just speaks to the fact that we, there's a lot we still need to learn about overexcitability, which is something that I said in my presentation last weekend. So on that note, you were kind of saying before that there's five areas. I think it'd be helpful to look at each of those five areas of overexcitability and some of the traits, because some of our listeners out there might identify with those as well. And it'd be good to sort of have an explanation of them. I know personally, when I read through some of the traits, I went, well, I think I've got all five areas of that personally. Um, but it's important to note, I think, that not everyone has all five areas of overexcitability. Everyone has their own combination of overexcitabilities. You can have a few, you can have all five. Um, Dabrowski considered it that you have a stronger developmental potential if you have more. And that emotional has to be either the strongest or as strong as the others. So there's some people that could have you know, one or more or a few areas, 
there's some people that could have all five and depending on the individual, you know, those ones would all be at different strengths, which kind of fits with Dabrowski because he likes to talk about, you know, different dimensions of things and different levels. So, you know, I guess it's like five different volume settings and each one could be sitting at a different level for each individual. That's right. That's right. It's so highly individual. Let's talk about the first one, which is psychomotor. What does psychomotor overexcitability look like and what are some of its features? Well, the first thing I want to mention before we go into it is that each of the types has kind of a pure expression of what it looks like and also an expression of emotional tension. And so the only one that doesn't have an expression of emotional tension is the emotional type. So in psychomotor overexcitability, you have a surplus of energy, sort of the the expression of it, which could look like rapid speech, um, intense physical activity, competitiveness, hyperactivity. But then you also have the psychomotor expression of emotional tension. And this is where you'll see nervous habits like nail biting or tics. Um, You know, this is where impulsivity is, compulsive talking or chattering, workaholism, acting out. I mean, those are like the most common examples. Those are the most common expressions of psychomotor. For me, it sort of translates as, you know, surplus of energy and it's more likely to increase when you're feeling emotionally tense or excited. I know personally, I, when I'm onto a good idea, or if I'm feeling a bit stressed out, I pace a lot. Um, and, you know, I used to chew things. So you talk about those nervous ticks. Um, I used to be a big chewer of things, which is really bad. Um, and scratch, nervous scratching <laughs> when I get real mm-hmm. stressed out. Um, and sleeplessness. I found so it's just like you know when your your brain's ticking and your emotions are ticking, your body just doesn't want to shut down. I'm also a pacer, and so is my son. And then for me, I was uh, like I picked or bit my cuticles on my fingers for years, and I have actually managed to I've managed to stop that habit amazingly. But yeah, I hear you. I am also I have these psychomotor issues. And also, like you said, I mean, it can become insomnia. It's, but I feel like insomnia is a mixture of also my intellectual overexcitability because my brain likes to wake me up in the middle of the night, like knock, knock. (laughs) Oh, you're awake. Like, let's think now. Time to get working. Mine will translate that if if I'm working on something exciting, uh, particularly if I'm not doing my day job, but I'm doing something creative on the side, like my sleep hours will drop down to like three or four a night. So I'll be up all night working about working on something and thinking about it. And then as soon as the sun comes up, it's like, bing, we're awake. We just want to get back to work. We just <laughs> want to work on that thing that we're obsessed with. That's right. I, I get that. Well, so let's go to the sensual overexcitability. Um, sensual, okay, also has the pure expression or the expression of emotional tension. And so it's really a heightened experience of um, sensual pleasure in this theory. It's interesting because Dabrowski didn't talk about what we would consider sensory processing disorder issues or, um, you know, he really in the theory was talking about it from a positive point of view. So the enhanced um, sensory pleasure of like music or art, like delight in beautiful objects, you know, 
seeing, smelling, you know, just enjoying input from the senses. But we know that it can also be in these less pleasant ways too. It just hasn't been researched adequately in terms of the theory. We're really talking about, you know, the five senses, you know, sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. Uh, and I know That's there's some, unple- some unpleasant stuff um, that comes with it because I've heard a few podcasts where people start talking about being irritated by clothing tags. Um, so that tactile sensitivity from touch or, you know, not being able to get the seams in your socks right um, or even like light or sound sensitivity. Or for me, it's, it's smell, actually. I have super smell, which is not fun because most things don't smell good. And so <laughs> I don't enjoy being somebody who is like a super smeller. But my son has super hearing. Um, he will. And so, yeah, it's absolutely like any of these through the senses, you can it can be too much. It can. And so it can be wonderful or it can be kind of like torture. And then there's also a central expression of emotional tension, like I mentioned, and this can look like overeating, buying sprees, or wanting to be in the limelight, which is an interesting one. I, and you see some fun examples of this in gifted kids who want to, who enjoy like their hams, you know, who enjoy being the center of attention and it, it can be, you know, kind of hilarious. But I guess that can also lead to some more problematic habits as well. So particularly if you're a pleasure seeker or and you're trying to dull your senses that can easily lead down the addiction slippery slope. That's right. And that is absolutely what I want to investigate more, you know, from the research perspective, I have had issues with addiction in the past. I've been addicted to drugs. I've been addicted to gambling. And so for me, when I saw this, when I saw central <laughs> overexcitability, I was like, Oh, hello, addiction. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's all right I'm in the same boat drugs and alcohol and I have a you know checkered past together I don't know whether or not it sort of started as one of those I want to experiment you know those youthful stupidities but um, certainly particularly with alcohol you know it's been a long path for me to sort of operate without it because it's quite easy to sort of uh, you know go my senses are on fire I just want to dull them down right yeah I've learned to I don't know, have less, less dangerous things to, in my life for this. Like I have a weighted blanket now. I enjoy the way that that calms my nervous system. Even for me, I mean, I must admit that like touch is a big thing for me. I'm a, I'm a big hugger. You know, I don't like touching people that I don't like, but you know, when I see friends and family, you know, I'm always in for a hug um, just because I don't know, for me, it brings me so much joy. Me too. I haven't always been, but I am now as an adult. And yes, at the conference last weekend, it was nice to hug people. It was very nice. And also, I guess you got that little uh, being in the spotlight hit as well from doing your presentation (laughs) and having it so well received. It was so nice. It's true. But yes, I don't love, I, I actually was one of those kids that enjoyed being in the limelight when I was young. But then I went through a long period where, oh, I just was super anxious and did not love it. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah, and these things can come and go. I think it's important when we're talking about overexcitability to remember that you don't just have it and it looks one way your whole life. Like these things, 
so Dabrowski, he talked about overexcitability in terms of narrow and broad. And so the narrow kind is more problematic. It's not developmental. And the broad or global type kind of takes over your whole psychic structure. I mean, that's how he would say it. And it's, it is developmental. It's, it's, po- it's more positive in terms of the conditions for growth in the theory, but I guess I'm probably jumping ahead of things with that. But I just wanted to mention, it's it's not a static thing where it's like, oh, you have overexcitability, it looks this way, it's gonna look that same way 20 years from now. It can change and evolve and transform. It can also become narrow. And so like an example of this is when I was young, I had this traumatic experience when I was 20 that I talked about in my presentation actually. But the thing is, being traumatized caused my emotional overexcitability to become narrow. And so for the first time in my life, I was kind of afraid to leave the house. I was agoraphobic. And so whenever you start to experience phobias, that is a narrowing of your overexcitability. It's not helpful to have phobias. Anxiety though, or depression would be global kinds of emotional overexcitability. And so here we are seeing that these things that most people think of as negative are actually positive in this theory. What what are some of the other aspects of emotional overexcitability while we're on that topic? Okay, yeah. So emotional overexcitability is the type that has the most manifestations and is the most important, I would say, in the theory, um, because it's like the driver of development, I think, you know, empathy in Dabrowski's theory is hugely important. Emotional, it's hard to even tackle because there, it looks so many different ways. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to stick with like the table of manifestations that we've been using as I've been describing them. Uh, feelings and emotions are intensified. So you have extremes of emotion. You have complex emotions and feelings. You can identify with other people's feelings or feel their feelings. You have awareness of a whole range of feelings. And then there are strong somatic expressions, a tense stomach, uh, blushing, sweaty palms. You know, your heart is racing or you're flushing. Then there's strong affective expressions like shyness or timidity, you know, inhibition, Mm. Um, enthusiasm, ecstasy, pride a strong affective memory, shame, feelings of unreality, fears and anxieties, guilt, a concern with death, and also depressive and suicidal moods. But basically, emotional overexcitability is a capacity for strong attachments in deep relationships, strong emotional ties, compassion, um, sensitivity in relationships. I think that's important to call out because... People are probably listening to this list of things to say, oh, you know, fear and guilt. And they might be thinking, well, everybody experiences those. But I guess the defining part of emotional overexcitability would be that it's stronger and probably more frequent than normal. So you're reacting to things in a stronger way that other people might sort of brush off. Well, and let me tell you, I think... It's very clear that not everybody experiences shame. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> point. I, as, I mean, I am thinking right now of people who should feel shame and don't. Um, and so it's it's certainly not a given. And I would say the same thing for guilt. 
I mean, a lot of people do feel guilt and shame, but not everybody. And of course, we're talking about Dabrowski. So there's levels of overexcitability. There's levels of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are dynamisms in this theory, but they're not always dynamisms. Like you can have guilt that's not a transformative type of guilt. You know, you can feel bad about something without wanting to do anything about it. And so, you know, all of this stuff, yeah, it's layered and complicated and nuanced, as is the Dorowski way. And particularly when we're talking about relationships, you know, complications and too many layers and nuance isn't always helpful. Right. But yeah, um, one thing that I think is interesting is that in Michael's, the chapter that he wrote that introduced overexcitability to Gifted Ed, you know, he really makes clear that it's emotional overexcitability when there's a relationship involved and that if a relationship isn't involved, it's not overexcitability. And it's some lower form of excitability or it's not developmental maybe. But I think that that's an interesting distinction and it's important that for somebody with emotional overexcitability, this is somebody who has the capacity for deep, strong relationships. Relationships are a part of how it looks and how it manifests. It's contextualized that way. Which might also manifest in pushing people away because of the fear of that strong attachment. Or shutting it down. I know that personally, when I was young, I kind of shut off my feelings because I didn't know how to deal with them. And so I, you know, went for years of my life without like being able to cry or, you know, it was easier for me to not feel than to feel. And I think that this is unfortunately a common coping mechanism for people with overexcitability. When my emotions are going and they're too much, um, I tend to call it hurricane brain because it feels like you're feeling everything at once really intensely, almost to the point where you can't even put your finger on how you feel about a situation because everything seems to be happening at once. You're afraid, you're sad, you're angry, um, you're excited, and it's all just roaring at you, you know, at full volume at the same time. And it becomes really uh, hard to sort of pick out how you feel. And what you said about it becoming sort of somatic resonates with me because at that point, I'll often get massive headaches, my teeth will hurt. Um, and it real literally feels like my head's about to explode. Yes, I know that feeling. <laughs> it's not fun, but I mean, I'm laughing, but I, I absolutely know that feeling of my head is going to explode or I just have, I'm going to shut down, you know? I mean, we talk about like meltdowns in people that are autistic or ADHD and it's the same thing with overexcitability in the gifted or, you know, it's, just reaching a point where you you just can't function anymore it's overload yeah overload for me there's only two ways to shut it down it's either try and get into meditation and shut it down or you're just going to burst into tears and it's going to come out that way and you're going to have a meltdown that's right yes so so yeah i mean oversuitability is intense that's how that's how I learned about it, doing searches for intensity. I guess on the opposite of emotional, or people might see it as opposite, would be intellectual. It's probably the one people would most associate with gifted people. So let's talk about what intellectual overexcitability looks like. Okay. Yeah, intellectual is definitely the one that most strongly correlates with intellectual giftedness. And Dabrowski thought it was the rarest overexcitability, which I think is 
noteworthy. Um, it's intensified activity of the mind. So a thirst for knowledge, curiosity, sustained concentration, um, AKA hyperfocus, um, avid reading, keen observation, a passion for precision. Um, these, and I just have to, you know, give credit that I like these words, these are directly from Michael Piahovsky's table of manifestations of overexcitability from his book, Mellow Out. Um, I just feel like I'm plagiarizing him, but this is, <laughs> but the table, like these, this is like my cheat sheet for overexcitability when people ask what it looks like. So that's why I'm going to it. Um, so intellectual is also a penchant for probing questions, problem solving, uh, a search for truth and understanding, and also reflective thought, like metacognition, thinking about thinking, love of theory, analysis, and logic, moral thinking, and independence of thought. And so all of this. Oh, well, I mean, I, I think that the negative is can look like... Um, yeah, overthinking. Oh my gosh, not <laughs> not being able to stop thinking totally. Uh, like I said, like I mean, at the conference last weekend, knowing that I had, or in, in the lead up to it, knowing that I had to present every night, my brain would activate between like three and four a.m., and then I couldn't go back to sleep because I, it just—it's like I had to rehearse. And so, I of course I think that's kind of a mix of intellectual and imaginational, but. My brain, it's always going. Overthinking for me often manifests in reading too much into things. <laughs> like re- yes. Either reading, in th- reading too much into things that people say offhand. Like, what did they buy that? Do they mean this? Like, you know, when they just said a straight sentence and you think there's like 500 layers between the lines. Um, or watching a movie or reading a book and seeing all this meaning in it or other people like it's just fiction like let it go like yes but you know you don't understand about this character which is good for like doing literary analysis and stuff but when you're just trying to watch a movie with people and you're seeing and reading all sorts of things into it they're not picking up you you come across as a bit of a weirdo sometimes yeah I was just thinking while you were describing that that people do not appreciate over intellectual overexcitability in others I think that it's one of the types that can be really annoying for other people (laughs) Who are not so intellectual. Particularly if you're racing ahead. The one thing it makes me think of is Tony Stark. Uh, And I actually did a piece on uh, why I think Tony Stark has overexcitabilities, but one of his intellectual traits is he's always doing the reading. Didn't anyone else do the reading? And he's really impatient with other people who can't keep up. So particularly in the first Avengers, he connects immediately with Bruce Banner because Bruce is the only one who seems to speak his language and can keep up with his ideas. And he gets really impatient with Steve Rogers. Like he hates Captain America because Steve just doesn't think on his level and can't keep up with his rapid thought. So there's annoying traits that that come out like that, like having high expectations on other people or getting impatient with them when they can't sort of keep up with you. Right. I, I loved your piece on Tony Stark. I thought it was great. It makes you a bit of an asshole, actually, because you just get impatient <laughs> with everybody who doesn't want to, you know, even people who don't want to discuss things on your level because they're not interested in it. You, you become frustrated because no one wants to, you know, talk in depth about Marvel characters and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge. If you have intellectual overexcitability, it's not easy 
to find other people who can satisfy your need for, you know, mental stimulation and being able to talk about your area of interest. I was going to say, thankfully now there's things like Facebook um, and social media where you can kind of connect with people who've got interests in those sorts of things. I think it's helped. Yeah. And for me, I had to create my positive disintegration study group to have, you know, people to talk about the theory with. And then I have like, there's another study group, (laughs) the theory that I'm in. And so, you know, it's, it's been important for me to find other people who really care about the theory and are willing to talk about it. And now, of course, here we are, we have this podcast, but it's, it's important to find people you can really dig in with about your special interest. Find your fellow nerds really right. I think is the, is the message. Yeah. And I know you've, you've done that with <laughs> Harry Potter too. So there you go. Yeah, I know. I, I like sticking my nose into intellectual and academic places where I don't necessarily belong, but we're also going to find people to you know, talk about the many personality traits of Sirius Black with. <laughs> Got to do it somewhere. You have to. Fiction is a good note, I think, to swap over to imaginational overexcitability. Of that, segue just presents itself and off we go. <laughs> so tell yes. us about imaginational. Okay, so imaginational is interesting, actually, because like this one for me, well, I have, I have things to say about this. So imaginational can be just the free play of the imagination where you are having, you know, invention and fantasy or detailed visualization, uh, the use of image and metaphor. And it also can be like animistic and magical thinking. But it can be the capacity for living in a world of imagination. Um, But uh, that would also include like having imaginary friends, being dramatic, uh, (laughs) mixing truth (laughs) and fiction. You know, I mean, uh, this it's somewhat, yeah, Yeah. I mean, common if you have imaginational overexcitability. Which which for kids um, is probably a little bit problematic. I know I was one hell of a daydreamer when I was a kid. Um, I still am, unfortunately, but for me, it was really difficult to focus in school sometimes, particularly if it got a bit boring. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd race ahead and do my work and then just sit and be staring out the window off in fantasy land somewhere. Same. And, and I suppose, you know, imag- imaginary friends and not being able to, you know, figure out truth from reality is probably a, a common thing with a lot of kids, I'd say. Right. And yeah, so like a low tolerance for boredom is a part of this. And the need for novelty. What you, what you were saying too about you know people who appreciate you know, magical thinking or have rich sort of visualization. The one thing that springs to mind for me are people who wax lyrical about Tolkien. How well he builds his worlds, particularly in like the Lord of the Rings. So they take his little nuanced descriptions and they can build this really vivid picture of what. Rivendell looks like or what Hobbiton looks like and they sort of can create that world in their mind so I know one of the things that I've read that people with imaginative OE tend to like is like fantasy and science fiction and maybe that's why because they're able to be able to build these worlds in their mind's eye. Yes I think so it's it's interesting to me because I think that imaginational overexcitability um can look like that. It it can look a lot of different ways. You know, it can be around this kind of world play, or it can be 
and like the only part that we haven't talked about yet is the expression of emotional tension aspect. And here we would have, you know, catastrophizing, you know, always imagining the worst thing that can happen. And this is where anxiety lives, right? Like, That's me. like this combination of imaginational and emotional can be really problematic. I can tell you 15 ways today the world will end. Don't you worry about that. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, so that's that's kind of a downside of it. And so in my research, I've found that psychomotor overexcitability is really strongly correlates with the hyperactivity, impulsivity dimension of ADHD and imaginational overexcitability correlates with um, the inattentive dimension of ADHD. So it's interesting, like, I hope that more people will do research to examine ADHD and overexcitability and kind of put them together more rather than try and tease them apart, which is something that we are going to talk about a little later in this episode. It'd be beneficial for particularly our listeners to understand how overexcitability kind of fits into Dabrowski's theory of positive disintegration. Because I think it's important to know that it's not just some standalone sort of construct. It's actually got a place within positive disintegration. True. Although it, I mean, it can stand alone too. Like we can absolutely understand overexcitability without bringing in the whole rest of the theory. But we do want to bring in the rest of the theory because, I mean, this is positive disintegration podcast. So we're not trying to. But I, but I mean, like now that you've said this, it's opened up a can of worms for me because to my mind, <laughs> one, of, one of the misunderstandings is that you can't study overexcitability without the rest of the theory. But I don't think that that's technically true because overexcitability predated the theory of positive disintegration. We obviously can study it without bringing in other constructs from Dabrowski. The question is, do we want to do that? And the answer to that, to my mind, is no that if we're going to talk about overexcitability, then we are going to keep it within the framework of Dabrowski's theory. And so it's important to understand that he saw overexcitability as creating challenges and conflicts for us, you know, and that could lead to disintegration. You know, there's one quote from positive disintegration that I always think about where he talks about how the child with imaginational overexcitability can't adapt to their environment. And so that's the problem. If you have overexcitability, well, the world isn't built for you. You are going to have a hard time fitting in. When you're a child, it's going to be tough to be in the classroom. When you're an adult, it's going to be tough to do your nine to five job. It's hard to adjust to everyday reality when you have overexcitability. And so that creates challenges. That's where the positive disintegration comes from. And so, you know, the unilevel or the multi-level disintegrations. So the overexcitabilities are the raw material that produce the dynamisms in this theory. It almost gives it a beneficial quality. From my understanding, it's like otherwise you've got these overexcitabilities. What are they good for? Well, your answers in the theory of positive disintegration, because this is the power of it. And you can, if you can direct it and use it to, you know, question your values, you you've got that developmental potential. Whereas otherwise, you might just say it as oh, it's just 
another, you know, almost neurodivergent thing that, that might be a hindrance in your daily life. And once you get past that sort of, uh, well, how is it inhibiting me? Positive disintegration for me is the the why behind it. Right. And you're making me think too that like the oversightabilities are kind of the foundation for a multi-level experience of reality. And so if you have overexcitability, then you you are taking in more, you're processing more, like you just have a different capacity for stimuli than somebody who doesn't have it. And so he, like Dabrowski, saw that as kind of the foundation for a multi-level reality. So, Chris, you've been sort of studying OE for a while. Uh, tell us about your studies in OE because I really want to get onto some of the topics about the myths and whether or not studying overexcitability is actually scientific. So I came to overexcitability because I was doing a personal research project and I was trying to understand my history of being gifted and also ADHD. And I saw myself as being mentally ill, right? Like it's a long story, but that's how I came to it. And so I, you know, it took me a while to really start digging in. But once I decided I needed to study Dabrowski's theory, I was becoming friends with Michael Bihovsky. Like we were writing back and forth to each other. Um, He helped me write a paper, you know, in his capacity as an associate editor of a journal. And just being in contact with him made me want to read all of his work. And so that's how I started. I read all of Michael's work, including his second dissertation. I mean, I really dug in, read both editions of his book, right? So then I had to read everything Dabrowski wrote, and I am still working on that because a lot of it's in Polish. And so I had to start learning Polish. And so it's almost five years now that I've been learning Polish, and I'm getting there. That's commitment, man. (laughs) That is commitment. It's it's commitment. And so, right, like I'm still learning, but I'm getting there. I can read children's books. And I actually am better at reading Dabrowski than I am at reading children's books because I've like memorized so much of his technical language. But um, so, yeah, so then I had to study the overexcitability research. And then I started examining Dabrowski's data and Michael's overexcitability data. And it's just been years of this at this point. But along the way, I read the criticisms about overexcitability. I read um, these papers in Gifted Ed saying that overexcitability is really openness to experience and that uh, Dabrowski's theory has no, that it's no longer relevant or that it can just be replaced by the five-factor model. And so when I saw that kind of thing, I was like, well, are they right? I mean, I had to figure out whether that was true or I would read, it's not in the misdiagnosis literature in Gifted Ed, you'll read that well, it's not really ADHD, it's, you know, it's overexcitability. Well, when I came to this theory, I saw myself as ADHD. And so I thought, well, is it really overexcitability? You know, is it either or? And what I've learned is that it's not either or. Overexcitability is the broad construct that encompasses ADHD. So as I was studying the theory, I had to get to the bottom of these issues and resolve them. And often that meant going to the Polish literature from Dabrowski and seeing what he said in the thirties with the help of Michael. And so 
it's been really interesting for me because, um, you know, I got to a point in like summer 2019 when I started really questioning him and saying, I think that it's, there's not a meaningful difference between ADHD and overexcitability. And I made the case for him and we kept digging into the Polish literature and yeah, I mean, we just had a chapter come out this summer together where he has his name on a chapter saying that this is true, that we can no longer try to say that it's either or it's kind of a big deal. (laughs) It is a big deal. Um, And I think particularly with some of the stuff that you're working on, you're really sort of honing in on the scientific sort of side of it. You know, when you talk about gifted ed saying, oh, we don't need this theory anymore. I think a lot of the the reasoning behind that, I think from the, the critics would be that it's not particularly, you know, quantitative science, um, but you sort of argued the case against that. Yeah, here's how I see it. The critics in Gifted Ed who are saying that this theory is pseudoscience, they have not approached making that claim in a scientific way. I see this as I have just spent the past like six years of my life studying this theory, like every day almost. I've had to force myself over the last few years to take Christmas off. You know what I mean? In Christmas 2016, I spent hours that day coding overexcitability data in you know, qualitative data analysis software. And so my approach to studying Dabrowski's theory has absolutely been scientific. It hasn't necessarily been quantitative research. I'm a qualitative researcher, but that doesn't mean that I haven't also examined quantitative research as part of what I do. And so essentially what I'm saying is that I don't wanna be a jerk about this, but the people claiming pseudoscience have not actually studied this theory. I would bet that none of them have ever even read one book by Dabrowski, let alone several. And so until they have a better grasp of Dabrowski's theory, I think that they should stay in their lane and stop saying this because it's simply not true. Science is cumulative and science is useful. We have decades and decades and decades of research and work on this theory. It's not all perfect. Maybe it doesn't all meet their criteria of what science should look like, but the fact is it is scientific and there's a ton of it. And then the useful criterion, well, obviously when Dabrowski's theory is no longer useful, it won't be serving a purpose anymore. But I can tell you that I have a never ending stream of people contacting me because they wanna study this theory, they're graduate students, or because they are using it in their practice and they wanna know more about it, or they've just learned about it and they've recognized themselves in it and it's meaningful to them. When those things stop happening, Dabrowski's theory will no longer be relevant. But I can tell you that we're a long way from that happening right now. As long as it's resonating with people so strongly, then there's a case to keep studying it. That's right. And we have to study it. So another thing is, in order to prepare for my presentation, I did read quite a bit, along with my colleague, Frank Falk, because we worked together on this session. And I just want to mention Frank, because he was really helpful with me. And he did a lot of the reading around what's the difference between science and pseudoscience. And really what we learned as we kind of delved into the philosophy of science literature 
is that when you look at, I mean, the problem of demarcation between science and pseudoscience is a legitimate problem. It's not always easy to tell the difference, but there are hallmarks. And unfortunately, there have been misapplications and problems in the gifted ed literature and in the gifted ed research when it comes to overexcitability. And so we have to acknowledge that, that there are some people who are unable to take evidence and data and change their minds. I have people in mind right now where I've said to them, look at this data. We can see that not all gifted people have overexcitability, and yet they can't seem to integrate this knowledge and change their beliefs. So that kind of person is a pseudoscientist. (laughs) And that's a big problem too for people that are just sort of new to the theory and, and coming at it like maybe they've sort of read about overexcitabilities and it's resonated with them and they're trying to figure out, you know, who to read and, and what to believe. And that could be really problematic when you don't know who's just, you know, talking out of their ass, I guess, and and who's actually gone and done the research and looked at the the data and the analysis behind it. That's right. That it can be problematic. And certainly that's something that we're dealing with right now. Yes. So are there any big myths that you want to call out for people that are sort of floating around there? Any particularly large pieces of bullshit that you want to point your finger at? Oh my goodness. Well, well yeah, while you're I throwing think down some... gauntlets, let's, let's do it. All right. Well, I mean, some of them we've already talked about. The idea that ADHD is different than overexcitability. We have to stop saying this. Again, overexcitability is the broad construct and it encompasses the hyperactivity and the inattention and the impulsivity that we see in ADHD. So yeah, that's that's a big one to my mind. I really it's very important to me as somebody who identifies as being ADHD. I want people with ADHD to investigate Dabrowski to look into positive disintegration. I believe that they're going to recognize themselves just like gifted people do when they come to this theory. Um, The next one is that overexcitability can be used to identify giftedness. It makes sense because when you like, when you examine the history of overexcitability and gifted ed, this was a big area of research in the nineties, especially there were many dissertations. Um, Cheryl Ackerman is one researcher who really investigated this And I mean, the outcome was that overexcitability is not a reliable way to identify giftedness because it's not only for the gifted, but this is, I mean, research, the whole point of it is to figure these things out. And so that was figured out, but a paper just came out last year that suggests that we could use overexcitability to identify the highly and profoundly gifted. And that is, that's just not true. There's no reason to think that we should be using overexcitability to identify the highly and profoundly gifted, especially when the only type of overexcitability that clearly correlates with that population is intellectual. And so the research that we've examined at the Gifted Development Center shows that there's only one type of overexcitability that clearly increases in strength with intelligence, and it's intellectual. The other four there's just not a meaningful difference there. Like you're, you can have it at lower levels of IQ too. It's not, God, this even gets into the issue of like IQ and giftedness. And it's a whole, it's a whole path that we don't want to go down in this episode. But 
it, it seems though they're like using a perfectly good tool for something it's not intended to do and then complaining that the tool's no good. And the, the, for some reason, I've got this mental image. You can't find your screwdriver, so you grab a butter knife to try and undo a screw, and sometimes <laughs> it works and sometimes it doesn't, and you bend your knife and you go, well, the knife is useless. It doesn't work. It's like, yeah, you're supposed to use it to cut things, not to, you know, remove screws. That's and, right. And it's like it, you're just complaining about you've got a tool that's not meant for that purpose and then bitching when it doesn't do that that purpose it's not built to do. Yes. And so absolutely, we want people to stop thinking of overexcitability as connected to gifted and to think of it, you know, open your mind, think of it more in terms of positive disintegration or, you know, even like neurodivergence. This is, I I look forward, we're going to write a paper about like kind of following up on this presentation to to try and catch this in the literature and say, hey, you know, because there's no place right now where this has been really made clear, except in my own work that has come out this year. And so I'm glad that we're getting a chance to talk about it here, but it, it also needs to be like a part of the gifted literature. And so the next one that comes to mind for me uh, when it comes to like myths and misunderstandings is the idea that overexcitability can only be understood within the context of the theory. You can understand overexcitability and not know anything else about Dabrowski's theory. However, that's not recommended. Because Dabrowski's theory is meant to be kind of an alternative framework to mainstream psychiatry or psychology, then overexcitability is also kind of an alternative. Like when we are identifying with overexcitability, we're choosing to be more positive in our view about these challenges. You know, we're not trying to pathologize or look at it from a deficit perspective. And so, you know, you can just see like just now while I'm trying to talk about some of these myths and misunderstandings, it's, it's complicated. You've got a point that overexcitability is probably a gateway. I've seen it as it's the thing that people can identify with. I mean, if people have got overexcitability, they're going to read like a checklist or a table of traits. And within 15 minutes, they'll either identify with it and probably be in tears because they've finally got an answer to who they are um, or, or they won't. But that, that side of the stepping stone for me, and that's certainly my journey with it, is I under, understood and resonated with overexcitabilities first and then was able to follow the path down to a theory of positive disintegration. So, you know, I mean, people can understand the concept of the wheel without understanding how a car works. It's just more beneficial to know that there's a mode of transportation called, called the car because it will take you a lot further than just, you know, rolling along with a wheel. I, I think you're right at that. The, the, the two do go hand in hand, but I don't see why... You know, if there's benefit in people being able to easily grasp overexcitability, why they shouldn't have access to that at first. That's right. Yeah. And so I think that there's only really one other, I don't know, it's it's not really a myth exactly, but I there was a session at NAGC where, you know, they were, I mean, interestingly, like, so these are, it was from the people who claim that um, overexcitability and openness are really the same. And they referred to it as overexcitabilities theory and their description, which bugs me. And because there is no theory of overexcitabilities, like it's the theory of positive disintegration. 
There is no overexcitability theory. And openness and overexcitability are not the same. They are not. And we there'll be more on this in the future. But I think that that's like, I think that that's a good start when it comes to the myths and misunderstandings. Just like, these are the big ones. As a resident expert and someone who is researching actively into overexcitability, if we go back to our butter knife and the screw analogy, how would you recommend that people take the butter knife of overexcitability and actually use it properly? That's a good question. Honestly, I think that we have to really think about the appropriate application of overexcitability and how we want to use it. And we need more study. That's very clear to me that I hope more graduate students, especially, are going to be interested in doing dissertations that kind of explore the aspects of overexcitability that have been so far unexplored. I mean, there are a lot of things that Dabrowski said about overexcitability that nobody's ever checked or investigated. And so there's plenty to work with. But when it comes to using it appropriately, I encourage people to use it as an alternative to the medical model. That's what I do. I mean, that's how we live here in my house. My son and I both are ADHDers, you know, gifted. And we don't think of this difference that we have in which we hyper-focus on our interests, you know, almost to the detriment of other things or are kind of inattentive and spacey or dreamy. We, we don't look at these as negatives. <laughs> we look at these from a different perspective. Like we operate differently. The world is not built for us. And we just accept this as who we are. And we are learning, you know, ways around that or ways to live with it. I think that this theory gives us a new framework for understanding um, these differences without seeing them as something that's wrong with us. And that's what Dabrowski wanted. His major thesis was that psychoneurosis is not an illness. He was right. The fact that we're different, the fact that we do react too strongly, um, yeah, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us. We're not broken. And changing your perspective on yourself like that is a very powerful thing for individuals. Uh, and even how it changes the way you view and relate it in your relationships with other people. I know for me, it's helped me get a better handle on who I am, but it's also helped me understand the different ways in how I interact with other people and how I could be abrasive um, or I could be frustrating. And it's helped me have smoother, better relationships with people because I'm more conscious of, of how I am. Um, and rather than beat myself up for being an oddball or, you know, oh, I did something wrong, I offended someone, just understanding that not only helps you mitigate it in the first place, but helps you be more forgiving with yourself when things do go pear-shaped. That's right. And actually, you just made me think of families. I mean, many clinicians that I know who use overexcitability in their practice, you know, as therapists, they, when they're working with a family, they say, okay, well, let's look at how the overexcitabilities in this family are different. Like maybe dad is very intellectual with a kid who's very emotional 
maybe mom, you know, I mean, when you look at the overexcitability makeup of the different members of a family, especially a gifted family, then you're going to have a better understanding of some of the, the conflicts that you have in certain relationships, or maybe why it's harder to connect between this parent and child or these siblings or, you know, and so it, it's very useful when it comes to understanding our makeup within a family. And I think that's probably one of the best reasons to continue to study it is if it makes people's life easier and it makes pe- it makes it easier for people to have better relationships, you know, with their loved ones, what could be a more worthy goal? That's right. Thanks, Chris. I think that's a lovely note to end on. I agree. I thank you, Emma. I think that this was an important topic for us to really delve into. And so I appreciate you. Me too. I feel the same. Um, I appreciate you and I appreciate all your expertise as well. So in the show notes, we're going to link to my chapter with Michael that I mentioned, Reexamining Overexcitability, a Framework for Understanding Intense Experience. It was in the Cross and Cross Handbook for Counselors Serving Students with Gifts and Talents. And we're also going to link to my paper with Frank Falk called The Origins and Conceptual Evolution of Overexcitability. And we're also going to link to Emma's blog or Emma's website, Tragic Gift, is a resource for people who are interested in this. And so I also want to link to Michael's book, Mellow Out, They Say, If I Only Could, Intensities and Sensitivities of the Young and Bright. That is where I got the table of manifestations that I shared during this episode. And Michael's book, Mellow Out, is the best book to read when it comes to understanding overexcitability, in my opinion. I love it. I've read it many times. I can't recommend it highly enough. And it's cheaper from the publisher than anywhere else. And so that's worth noting. And then Michael was co-editor with Susan Daniels on Living with Intensity. That is another book that people find very useful in understanding themselves and overexcitability. So I think that those are the big resources. Cool. So that's an awesome list of resources and we'll link those in the show notes. Thanks, Chris, once again for being on the podcast and giving our listeners such valuable information. So that's all we have time for on the end of our show. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so on social media through Twitter and Instagram on Positive Disintegration Podcast or at Gmail at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep walking the path to your authentic personality.